0: Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. In 1793, the dreaded yellow fever swept through Philadelphia. The deadly virus raced through the nation's capital between August and November, killing at least 5,000 of the city's inhabitants. Among the multiracial group of Americans on the front lines of the battle against the disease was Dr. Benjamin Rush, a signer of the Declaration of Independence and a key figure in the nation's early medical establishment. Rush, who was the architect of the reunion between Thomas Jefferson and John Adams after years of bitter silence between the two men, was a founding father in his own right, but one often overshadowed by his contemporaries. On today's episode, historian and journalist Stephen Freed joins me for a wide-ranging conversation about Rush, founding legacies, and, of course, public health and medicine in the 18th century. I reached Freed by Zoom, and as you'll hear, we jump right into a discussion about why Rush and his writings have been used to get at other founding fathers— but he hasn't received as much attention in his own right. Freed is the author of the recent book, Rush, Revolution, Madness, and Benjamin Rush, the visionary doctor who became a founding father. If you felt the burn in 18th century Philadelphia, you might have called Dr. Rush, but he was much more than the sum of his medical kit. Now, before we get started, just a quick hello to our longtime listeners and new subscribers. We're glad you're here, and be sure to check out our live stream events with authors such as Alexis Coe, Edward J. Larson, and many other historians. You can find more information at www.mountvernon.org/digital. And with that, let's recover the founding legacy of Dr. Benjamin Rush with Stephen Fried.
1: You know, Rush is not just the great unknown biography subject. Um, no one's done anything much yeah. with Rush since the 1950s.
0: Well, that was going to be one of my my questions, and maybe we can just st- sort of start there and jump off. I mean, yeah,
1: sorry, I'm just babbling on here.
0: No, no, no. I th- actually, I think that was a great great entry point because I've been I've been thinking about it as you were talking, um, you know. But uh, we have all these biographies of various founding fathers, in part because we have papers projects like the Washington Papers or the Adams Papers, uh, and so on and so forth. I mean, it, why is it that you think that there has been less interest in Rush since the '50s? And do you think that's a, just a sort of, um, a, a, a lack of interest in, I'm going to say, quote unquote, sub or second tier founders, or is it a function of the fact hey. that there is no paper projects? Hey,
1: there's no second, not a second <laughs> tier. Go ahead.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I mean, is it, do you think it's a, a function of those,
1: uh,
0: of those, uh, you know, des- it's interesting. I had
1: discussions with, um, I was really lucky when, when this project started, um, Uh, Dickinson College uh, Mm -hmm. put on a uh, symposium about Rush. It was supposed to be for the 100th, 200th anniversary of his birthday but it was for the 201st. And and at it were uh, representatives from the Washington Papers, Mm -hmm. from the uh, Jefferson Papers um, who I I was on a panel with. um, uh, With Martha King and, and Bill Ferraro and they were incredibly generous to me the entire time that I was doing this because Look, I'm a general writer who comes to subjects almost, you know, from scratch and Mm -hmm. learns about them. That's what those of us who started magazines and do general interest biographies do. Um, So what you need is people who are willing to let you ask the stupidest questions in the world and not make you embarrassed that you don't know the answers to them. Sure. Um, So the people, the papers projects are great about that. Um, I later got to know uh, Sarah Giorgini at the Adams project Oh yeah, and they were all great founding fathers get project. Uh, it's based on who gave money at a certain point and whether mm-hmm. that money was sustaining and whether the project was embraced by a university and some of it's kind of luck. Um, a lot of it changed during the post-war era. Uh, okay. So some of these projects existed before, but a lot more of them, the post-World War II era. Mm-hmm. And I think the main reason that Rush got screwed is very simply because uh, at this time when the projects were either being put into place or being made bigger, um, Lyman Butterfield, who was um, just like a scholar at f College, who got interested in okay. Rush because f bought a letter at an auction of, of Rush materials in 1943 that was really a turning point in revolutionary history because the Rush family had suppressed so much of the materials Rush had, oh. because the letters between him and Adams and him and Jefferson, especially, were so personal that Adams and Jefferson had asked the family not to let anybody see them. Oh wow. and, and Rush had also been writing an autobiography, which the family was embarrassed. People would see and would see how critical he was of people, mm-hmm. uh, especially Washington. Oh, yeah. Uh, but he was. He was basically keeping like what I think of as a burn book, um, you know, like you have in high school. Uh, yeah. but he, and he wrote what he thought of every person who signed the declaration of independence and every general in the revolutionary army. And he didn't pull any punches. So the family didn't, was afraid these things would be misinterpreted. Mm-hmm. Um, especially when Russia's son was in the government, he was afraid this would hurt his career. Um, I don't think they realized that things would be suppressed for so long. So they were finally sold in 1943 because Russia's last heir um, died. I see. Um, who, who was in the line to get them? They were sold three huge auctions at, at Park Bernay in 1943, and all these letters to and from Rush and Rush's manuscript and all this stuff came out. It fueled the Adams Papers Project, it fueled a lot of Papers Projects. Mm-hmm. And Lyman Butterfield um, was a young historian, and he made a deal to edit the Rush letters uh, in a, for the American Philosophical Society and for Princeton University Press. Mm-hmm. And, um, it was a huge undertaking. And, um, so he was processing them and he had made a proposal to APS, uh, to create a rush, um, hub, um, much like a, you know, the kind of papers project we have today, not just the the old fashioned papers project. He really predicted what founders online would be. I mean, he believed that eventually you'd be able to look at the letters back and forth in one place Mm -hmm. and not have to go to the Adams papers for the, letter from Adams and into the Rush papers oh, and yeah. response from Rush. And so he did that, he published this book. Uh, at the same time uh, a historian, the medical historian George Corner published Rush's autobiography mm-hmm. and his commonplace books. These were all published 49, 50, 51. Yeah. And then um, and Butterfield had a deal with the American Philosophical Society to move on to create what would have been a Rush papers project. Instead The Adams papers hired him uh, to be editor in chief of the Adams papers (laughs) and, and the rush project just sat Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and it is amazing how much interpretive writing has been done on the rush papers um, based on scholarship that literally stopped about a year after Butterfield's book was published in 1951. Even to the point where Butterfield had had letters that he hadn't had room for in the book, Mm -hmm. And letters that were sent to him after the book came out, and he was not able to revise the book and put them in there. Oh, yeah. So they were published like in a magazine, um, and they're not that easy to find. Oh, I bet not. So, so people can find the book, um, and the book was recently uh, reprinted uh, by Princeton University Press, but they didn't update it because they, they didn't have fun. Mm. So Rush, you know, basic Rush scholarship is still, I don't want to say it in it's infancy, but... It, he's one of the only founders for which there are still going to be letters that no one's seen that are going to change the history of history, which is exciting. Um, we found some of them, but it was really just, you know, the tip of the iceberg. I mean, I was mm-hmm. there to write a general interest biography. Um, but I do hope that we encourage, and I've talked to the library company, I've talked to the stakeholders who uh, who, who have Rush and the letters to him. So there are, you know, the Rush papers are at... Um, Library Company in Philadelphia, the American Philosophical Society has uh, his autobiography and some of his commonplace books. College of Physicians in Philadelphia has some of the materials. University of Pennsylvania uh, Special Collections has some of the materials. Uh, The Rosenbach Museum in Philadelphia has some of the materials. The Rubenstein Special Collections Library at Duke Mm. uh, has a wonderful collection of Rush letters, which are all digitized and online, some of the only ones that are on. So there's a lot of opportunities, Um, and I'm you know I'm hopeful that someone, maybe someone you know watching this today, will be the one to say, "Hey, I want to make sure that there's this project."
0: Well, and how did you get into it? I mean, where did your interest in Rush come from? You
1: know, it's interesting. I mean, I first heard about Rush. I, 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 one of the things I cover uh, as a journalist and in books is mental health. Mm -hmm. Um, so in the 1990s, I was covering mental health uh, a lot, and one of the things I covered was. The American Psychiatric Association convention uh, came to Philadelphia in 1994 because it was the 150th anniversary of APA, which was founded here in Philly. Um, wow. So I heard a little bit about Rush, and I got a tote bag that had Rush's picture on it because the APA tote bags <laughs> used to all used to have Rush's picture on it, and it's been that, that tote bag's been hanging in my office for years. Um, I don't really suggest usually that people base big projects <laughs> on tote bags. Um, but in this case, that tote bag really was sort of an early, uh, an early impetus for this. And so I, I had it in my head that I should find out about Rush. And then later, um, after I, I started writing history books, and I decided that I would wanted to write an American Revolutionary period mm-hmm. uh, history book. Um, I actually first started by researching the Liberty Bell. Um, oh, and I, really? I spent almost a year researching the history of the Liberty Bell um not only uh, during the revolutionary period but uh, all the way up through its present life and so I spent all this time for, you know working on this proposal and then what I realized when I put it through was that everybody said this is a really good story. It would be really great if it was about a person
2: um,
1: <laughs> but the Liberty Bell is not a person yeah and and after a certain point it's hard to read about the history of something that's mental um, so i I took that to heart and I thought, okay, who could I look at who um, gives me the same kind of I mean, I like the Liberty Bell because it lived through so many eras. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You could you could place it in so many eras, and so I started looking for human people who would be uh, who would allow me to do the same kind of thing. And I was amazed that Benjamin Rush was available.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, honestly, and the whole time I was writing the book, I was so afraid that David McCulloch was going to announce <laughs> he's doing the Benjamin <Avenger> Rush biography. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I, you know, I, I started looking at what Rush would be if I pitched him as a book, and I realized that he gave ex- almost exclusive access to the, the entire pre period from the pre-revolutionary war all the way through the federal period mm-hmm. um, up until his death in 1813 in politics, in medicine, in philosophy, in patriotism, yeah. um, in relationships. And um, so, you know, I just, uh, there was no shortage of material in every period. And what I also found is that almost everybody who had written about him before had really only been interested in him for a real specific thing. You know, so no. there's one book that's just about his ideas about education and the writer doesn't care about anything else. <laughs> um, there, are, there are books, the, the best book about him, um, the Hawk biography, uh, Hawk was mostly interested in Pennsylvania politics. Okay. And the book actually stops in 1790 for no reason. <laughs>
0: Just a hard stop. It just,
1: it just stops, you know? Um, so each of the book, you know, people always wrote about rush on the way to something else. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I just thought, you know, this guy is a great story. He's a great character. He's a wonderfully interesting writer. Yeah. And, um, so let's just do a biography of him. Um, I didn't know it would end up being as long as it did Mm -hmm. was, but, um, you know, I didn't care. And my publisher was really supportive and, um, Mostly what made it longer was that um, you know, toward the end of people's lives, a lot of times their stories just kind of fall off the
0: cliff. Yeah. There's
1: not much yeah. left. But, you know, the end of Rush's life, the last few years of Rush's life, was this unbelievable dialogue between him and Adam.
0: Oh, sure. After yeah. they haven't
1: spoken for five years. It's like, you know, it's like my dinner with Andre. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> just like a it's like an eight-year-long fascinating conversation about everything. Yeah about their lives, about, you know, how they screwed up the revolution, how, you know, what was going on with their kids. Um, and that mm-hmm. they also couldn't believe that they weren't as famous as Washington and, Jeff- and Franklin, um, just just about everything. And so I I couldn't let it go. And so yeah. I just basically built, you know, this, this last part of the book around their dialogue, which I just adored. Two cranky old guys um, retelling <laughs> the story of America from the perspective of, like their kids are now running. Yeah. Yeah. Right. At this point, I mean, John Quincy Adams is rising, and actually, so is Richard Rush. Yeah. So they're sitting there just being amazed that they're living, you know, the new world of America through their kids.
0: Well, it's funny too because as you were saying, usually people use Rush to get at somebody else, and so and, you know the typical dialogue we think at the in the last years of the Revolutionary Generation are the Adams Jefferson dialogue, as opposed to the Adams Rush dialogue. And you know, what are we what are we missing by consistently focusing on Adams and Jefferson when we, we could also be looking at Rush, who was a central part of uh, a great many things in the Revolutionary period and in the early Republic.
1: He was also a great interrogator. He was like their therapist. Yeah. I mean, it's not surprising that one of Rush's goals was to get Adams and Jefferson back together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he approached it the way that somebody would approach a therapeutic relationship. <laughs> um, so the real way of doing it, and you know there is a book of Adams and rush's letters, but it was you know it was edited a number of years ago, and it was mostly edited to get to Adam, yeah, yeah, um, not so much to get to rush, so my way of looking at it was i I mean I have the benefit also of you know when those guys did that book, they had to go and get all the letters and put them together, yeah, yeah, oh yeah, I have the ability to to go up on thank God for the national Archives founders online mm-hmm. like, which really mm. lets you look at the dialogues a little bit better. But what's abundantly clear when you actually look at this is that what this is about is uh, it's a dialogue between Rush, Adams, and Jefferson, mm. uh, which slowly comes into play after the election of 1800. So after the election of 1800, Rush stays kind of in touch with Jefferson, very not a lot, but some. Uh, Jefferson and Adams are not in touch for 12 years. And Rush and Adams are not in touch for five years. Um, But their kids will see each other, especially Rush's kids and Adams' kids will see each other. And they'll say, oh, I saw Dr. Rush, blah, blah, blah. And Abigail is becoming increasingly upset because John Adams is so depressed. Yeah, Um, yeah. And so there's great encouragement of this. And when Adams finally reaches out to Rush in 1805 and says, you know, we should have some kind of dialogue before one of us dies. Um, it sets off this letter-writing campaign, which is just really fascinating, which the kids are also involved in. I mean, they're talking about John Quincy. They're talking about Richard, who at the beginning is just like a local lawyer trying to figure out what to do with his life. Sure. By the end of the dialogue, he's uh, pretty high up in the U.S. government mm-hmm. um, and later would become John Quincy Adams' you know vice presidential running Yeah. President. Um, so the kids are involved in the dialogue too. And then when Rush finally convinces jefferson and adams to have their own interaction which is about a year and three months before rush dies um then it becomes more complicated and then when rush dies a good bit of the dialogue between adams and jefferson has to do with conversations that each of them were having with rush (laughs) um and part of the re i I, what i love one of the things i love is so you know we all know about the jefferson jefferson bible yeah but when you and what, what you look at in the in the letters about the Jefferson Bible is, that, so why did Jefferson finally do the Jefferson Bible? He did it because he and Rush had been having a conversation about the Bible and about Jesus and about the role of organized religion for a long time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And he had always promised Rush that he would write about it. And Rush, interestingly, besides being a writer himself, was an incredible instigator of other people's writing. Um, some people believe that his dialogue with Adams was, just to get Adams to write an autobiography. Oh, I'll be darn. And since Adams refused to, the letters became one.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, but keep in mind, what's the most famous thing that Benjamin Rush did? He encouraged Thomas Paine to write common sense. <laughs> That's also you know, true. He edited yeah. common sense. He, pu- he got common sense published. He was a teacher who very much encouraged other people to write mm-hmm. too. That was part of his goal. So, after Rush dies, one of the first things Adam says to Jefferson is, you know, you always promised Rush you were going to write something about your religious views. And and he's dead, but I'm staying on you. About <laughs> and so he would periodically say, like, you," he said, he you promised Rush yeah. that you would do this. And so when Jefferson published the Bible, the preface of the Bible explains how it grew out of conversation. That he and Rush had had in Philadelphia mm-hmm. uh, during the 1790s, which he considered a great distraction, a wonderful distraction from the, all the challenges of state that were going on <laughs> um, at that time. So, it's the, the great thing about Rush is almost everything about him is really personal. You know, all the relationships are really personal, and while they have political aspects, and mm-hmm. we can analyze those aspects, it's it's really personal. It's like the relationship you have with your doctor.
0: Oh, sure, sure. Well, and how did he how did he develop? That sensibility, or that desire to be an instigator, or to be the ultimate bear poker—I guess would be another way to put it. I mean, what's his origin? You story? know,
1: I—I I, I think he always had it. Um, I mean, you mentioned uh, before we came on that you studied Witherspoon. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, one of the first times that we know that Rush has this—not—not not just an ability to talk to people and listen to people, but an ability to really sort of psychoanalyze them and help them work things through—is that. You know, the history of Princeton University would be a lot different if Benjamin Rush hadn't, in the 1760s, convinced John Witherspoon and his wife right. to move to America to take over Princeton, which had had, like, I think, four presidents in six years or yeah. something. Yeah. Because they kept dying of everything. And Will, Witherspoon wanted to come, and um, uh, the, his wife
0: wouldn't go. Yeah, Mrs. Witherspoon and did so, not want to go.
1: Right. So it, it became Rush's job, and there, there was a lot of sexism you could see in the letters. Of oh, it. yeah. First of all, they couldn't believe that Witherspoon wouldn't go because of his wife. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the letters from the Princeton people were like quite mean. Um, and Rush was also not sexist. So I think part of it was that he, he actually went to their home yeah. when she wouldn't do it, and he spent days talking to her about why she wouldn't leave and trying to tell her how important it was to the history of Princeton because had going to Princeton It really mattered, mm-hmm. and he convinced her. She was partly afraid of being on a boat. Sure, um, yeah. And and uh, but the, there's hints in the writing of other kinds of psychological issues. But he convinced her that it would be worth the risk to cross the ocean and to go and to save Princeton University, um, which is how Princeton became what it was. I mean, yeah. it, it was not the the monolithic school that it was then. So. That happened when Rush was in his very early 20s, Mm -hmm. and I think that was the beginning of people understanding that not only was he quite smart, people knew he was brilliant, had an amazing memory, you know, he had this big high forehead, and people would always say it seemed like he had so much stuff in his head, (laughs) was like pushing to come out, Um, but that there was something very practical about the way he was, Mm -hmm. even though he was a gossip, he was nosy. He got his, he got involved in a lot of things yeah. that people would wonder, like, why is Russian involved? But he did it because he was trying to make situations healthier. And he approached political situations like a doc. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, so I think that that is the beginning of that. And, and you see it replaying lots of times and he, when he becomes a member of the continental Congress in, in 1776, he's up at a certain level then. Yeah. And, um, uh, and the people who like him appreciate that about him, even though they know that he can be over the top mm-hmm. and that they, he can be nosy, and that he's he's not even the best secret keeper. Uh, and they kind of know that, <laughs> um, but they also know that he really is interested in these things, that he cares about them, and he's not there for power, yeah. like some of them are. Sure, you know he, he's there to try to solve the most important philosophical issue that humans ever mm-hmm. get to solve in their lifetime and he truly believes that the creation of america is the most important thing that will ever happen in the world Mm -hmm. um and so uh that having that belief both as a scientist and a man of faith and a a man of faith who believed in science which in some situations seemed mutually exclusive to people but was not in russia's case i think had a lot of power
0: yeah and so, did he, when he was in Edinburgh at medical school, is he picking up on a lot of Enlightenment ideas that are informing his worldview and informing his—you know—I guess you might say a the the belief in the perfectibility of both man and the body politic.
1: I think that that's fair. I wouldn't call myself a, an Enlightenment scholar, mm-hmm. and I tried as much as possible in this book to not let um, not let those big ideas sure. overtake people's lives. Yeah. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that Rush is an Enlightenment figure. Um, and I think that his work at the University of Edinburgh, you know, in the 1760s had a huge impact on him.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He was learning from William Collins. And it's oh, interesting. Yeah. he writes about Collins, you know, Collins, but for Rush, he's really upset because Collins is a deist, mm-hmm. And Rush doesn't know why science and religion have to be enemies. Yeah, uh, Even though, uh, for Cullen, then Rush goes to London and finally meets Franklin, who's his neighbor, but he never met him in Philadelphia. Who's also a D. <laughs> Um, So he he has this lifelong issue with why can't some of the people who are my mentors uh, be both brilliant scientifically and medically and acknowledge mm-hmm. the importance of faith? Oh, sure. To the point the point where I, I love the scene when Franklin is dying, all Rush wants to know from his family is at the last minute, did he say anything about Jesus? <laughs> yeah. Did, you know, did, did he, did he finally get it? Did he yeah. finally get it? And they say no. And he's like, you can imagine this sort of heading dog look on Rush's face. Um, <laughs> because he really did, uh, you know, believe, um, but he was really there. I mean, I, I think that if people worry about the separation of church and state and the separation of science and faith, yeah, uh, which is hardwired into America mm-hmm. and, are, and are difficult things, I think they should really read Rush. Yeah. Because what's funny is that people cherry-pick quotes from Rush that they think prove one position or the other. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm.
1: But what's amazing about Rush is if you read the whole thing in context, what you see is him wrestling with these issues, knowing that there's not one side
0: to yeah. take. He's actively working um, to reconcile them with each other.
1: Yeah, I mean, he had a very clear idea from the minute America was created what the basic frictions were going to be mm-hmm. and how hard it was going to be uh, to deal with them, because it was always going to swing back and forth. I mean, he identified them in, in passing in one speech I thought was really kind of brilliant. He identified them as balancing science, religion, liberty, and good government. Mm-hmm. Those were sort of the four things that he thought were always going to um, sort of be swinging back and forth from each other. And, yeah. and we can see them today. it's You know, it's the debate. I mean, we're in the middle of this coronavirus here thing right now. Sure. We are in the middle of a Russian dilemma, yeah. for sure. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, especially right now, it's if you look at the um, the tension between the states and the federal government. You know, who's supposed to be leading this charge? You know, and and what are the larger uh, questions and implications there for, however you define liberty and freedom? Yeah, it's all over the place.
1: It's it's really it's really interesting, and and the founders. You know, I think that a lot of the founders wrote about these things, thinking that the like what they had figured out in the Constitution and in the Bill of Rights. Were the solution because they were like lawyers. Yeah, they figured if you make a rule, that will solve the problem. Sure, you know Rush was a doctor, and I think Rush understood that. You know, doctors have to deal with the things that Mm -hmm. don't go away, even though you think you have treatments for them.
0: Oh, sure, sure. Well, can we talk a little bit about his training as a physician? I'm curious to know how somebody like Russ Rush, excuse me, would have been educated as a physician in the 18th century. I mean, you know, nowadays there's medical school and residency, and then, um, you know, they go on to their careers in private practice or in major hospitals. How does it work for somebody like Rush in the 18th century?
1: Well, Rush is right on the cusp of, of it changing. Mm-hmm. I mean, one, it's changing, the medicine's becoming more scientific and less philosophical, that's sort of happening generally. Uh, but what's happening in America is when Rush is coming up, there are no medical schools in America. Now, you don't need to go to medical school to be a doctor There's no licensure or anything like that to be a doctor. You need to apprentice and trade with somebody and then you can put your shingle out there. Uh, and rush first did that. Um, he apprenticed with John Redmond who was a very famous doctor in Philadelphia, worked at Pennsylvania hospital, uh, which is America's first hospital was a hospital for the indigent. Mm. I mean, people with money did not go to a hospital. They were treated at home. Mm -hmm. Um, and he worked with Redmond and then, um, One of Redmond's uh, former apprentices, uh, John Morgan, uh, came home from the University of Edinburgh and decided to start a medical school, the first medical school. He uh, then uh, asked his friend, who became his ex-friend, William Shippen, who had also Uh been in Edinburgh, to be the first professor. Shippen was a professor of anatomy uh, and gynecology. And Shippen never forgave him for not saying that the two of them started the school together. And they literally fought their entire lives. So they came back. Rush took, he was the first student in both of their courses. So he was the first student in Shippen's anatomy class. And he was the first student um, in Morgan's class. And then he decided uh, either because he didn't want to be in the the way of these two guys fighting with each other Mm -hmm. or because he decided that the right way to do was to, follow in their footsteps and go to Edinburgh. Um, his mother somehow got the money together because she was not wealthy. His father had died when he was five. His Mother had a shop on market street, uh, but she somehow was able to get the money together to allow him to, uh, uh, sail across the Atlantic and get to Edinburgh. And the way medical school worked, then you uh, paid for tickets for lectures and you kept the tickets. And then at the end you paid the professor to, uh, uh, proctor you want to test which allowed you to pass it's sort of the way um, our online courses work today
0: Oh, that's true. Um, yeah,
1: but You didn't pay t- you didn't pay tuition to a school. You actually bought tickets for the individual uh, Lectures and so that's what Rush did in America. And mm-hmm. then that's what Rush did in Edinburgh. He got his degree from Edinburgh um, and then he stayed in Europe. He went to London uh, Franklin introduced him to sort of not only all the famous writers So Rush got to meet, like, every living writer who he'd studied in uh, high school. Yeah. Um, He got to dinner with them, David Hume, you know, all these people. Um, But he also met uh, with sort of the leading lights of medicine in London and did some training with them. Mm -hmm. And then went to Paris and did the same thing, all at the – because he had letters of introduction from Franklin. And so when he came back to Philadelphia in 1769, he had a degree from the University of Edinburgh. He was ready to practice. Um, but then he had to create a private practice, which he, he writes about in great detail about how hard it is. Part of the reason that people in medicine like Rush is because he always is very clear about how hard it is to be a doctor, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: how hard it is to make a living, how hard it is to deal with your patients, how hard it is to keep up with literature, how hard (laughs) it is to deal with the unknowns um, of science, of medicine, of human nature. And, um, so he talks a lot about how challenging it is to create a practice in Philadelphia, especially because he considers himself to be the wrong religion to start a practice. Oh, in what sense, so Philadelphia is Philadelphia is controlled by Quakers mm-hmm. and Church of England at this time, and to a lesser degree to by First Presbyterians. And Rush was from the more offshoot Second Presbyterian Church. Uh. he he complained about the fact that there were very few pastors in Philadelphia who were going to help him uh, create a practice. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, um, a lot of the things that Rush came to understand about the revolution came from aspects of his own private life. Mm -hmm. Uh, My belief that his ideas about separation of church and state grew out of the fact that he understood that there was, if there was anything like a state church, it was going to be discriminating against somebody, if not almost everybody.
0: Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. And so,
1: and so, even and, and he had some of his patients were Jewish.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, some I, he mentions the passing. Some of them were Muslim. I don't know what percentage they could be, but there were, um, and there were people who were who were a religious. Mm-hmm. And so he was before we even had a revolution. He was already talking about these ideas about what um, religious prejudice was about. Yeah, so it's not surprising that he immediately signed on to separation of church and state. It's a big issue in the Pennsylvania. Uh, constitution because it actually had a religious oath
3: um, Oh yeah. at the
1: time in Pennsylvania. The original Constitution you couldn't run for office unless you swore an oath to Jesus and swore that the Old and New Testament were factual. <laughs> I mean, ironically, Rush believed all that. Yeah, but thought it was just unbelievable that anybody would think that we're fighting for freedom against a king and a state religion, and this is what we're going to put in. Yeah,
0: we're going to impose it in, in Philadelphia or in Pennsylvania.
1: So. So he, he learned that way, but he, you know, he built up his practice. Um, a lot of the way he made a living was that there was a new form of smallpox vaccination um, uh. that was a little bit less dangerous than the original one that mm-hmm. Cotton Mather had popularized in America uh, called the Suttonian method. And he had learned it in England. So he could make money doing that. Um, and his first, uh, you know, w- the first thing he did in what became independence hall was not like vote on the constitution, but every Tuesday they would give away free inoculations um, in, in, in in the state house to try to troll for patients.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, in in the, in the book, we try to show like the things that we were able to find some of the cases that really defined him,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, including a case that no one had really written about, which was his first psychiatric case, um, in which almost every other important doctor was a consultant on, and the patient uh, was the best friend of John Dickinson, who was the most powerful oh. lawyer at the time, and who ironically Rush replaced in the Pennsylvania delegation Mm -hmm. to sign the declaration. Um, so, uh, we were able to sort of piece together his medical career, which, you know, which he wrote a lot about and, but it was always challenging. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons I think that rush didn't run for public office was because he couldn't afford to. Oh, sure. You have somebody at home like John Adams did. His wife could run their farm. You know, he
0: had a fee for service business. Mm -hmm. Uh, that was the only way that he could feed his growing family. And he was wealthy in patronage, but not necessarily wealthy in currency. That'd be a fair assessment. Well, How how does he become involved in the revolution? As you mentioned earlier, uh, he he, uh, is central to getting Thomas Paine to publish Common Sense. He edits the thing. You know, he's friends with Franklin. Uh, He becomes uh, the Surgeon General of the Middle Department for the Continental Army during uh, part of the war. How does he get swept up in the revolutionary moment?
1: Well, Rush uh, was identified as one of the early Philadelphia Sons of Liberty when, when Philadelphia got its own branch of the Sons of Liberty, um, in part because he co-authored the proclamation that led to the Boston Tea Party. Mm. So, the, I mean, every city that was getting imports of tea were going to have a protest. Sure. And it just so happened that the, that Rush and his friends in Philadelphia wrote a proclamation first. Uh, Rush is a really good writer. Yeah. That was He had value to people because he was a really fast writer. Mm-hmm and really good, smart writer, he never buried the lead. Um, <laughs> and, you know, so he knew what worked in newspapers. And so he uh, co-authored the proclamation, and then the proclamation was in the papers in Philadelphia. And then the people in Boston said, well, we don't need to rewrite a proclamation. This one that these Sons of Liberties wrote in Philly is good. We'll use that one. Yeah. Um, so that's the one that was in the paper there. And that's when he would have first become known, at least quietly, as being involved in any of this. Um, and the belief is he also wrote a pamphlet against slavery, um, Mm. which, uh, Anthony Benazet, the abolitionist encouraged him to do, uh, very powerful, not only against slavery, but against racial prejudice for free blacks. Many of whom were his patients, uh, who he said, look, black people are the same as white people, which is probably in his time, the most revolutionary thing that he said. And he said it a lot. And, and people, you know, it, it got him in trouble because, you know, there were too many white people who didn't believe. It. Oh, sure. Because he wrote that uh, abolition um, pamphlet, he lost a lot of his business.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's probably the reason he didn't write common sense himself. Because he had uh. started the pamphlet that became common sense, but he realized that this could really be challenging to him. And he said, why not let, you know, as a freelance writer, I really love the fact that he said, well, let a freelance writer write it. I mean, <laughs> if a freelance writer is torn to shreds for writing this. It's better than a doctor. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, he so he met Thomas Paine, and and he and he he and Paine decided that Paine would write it, and Paine would bring in the pages, he would edit them, and um, and then you know he titled it because it was supposed to have a different title, and then he uh, got it published. Mm-hmm. Um, and no, of course, no one had any idea this was going to be such a big thing. It wasn't even the biggest thing that was supposed to happen that week in Rush's life. Because Rush got married that week, too. <laughs> and and Rush was 30 years old, and he had been waiting to get married because his family, which had invested so much money in his medical education, said that he could not marry until he was 30. Oh, I um, see. So, um, so he was, you know, an older husband. And he was married, uh, Julia Stockton, mm-hmm. who was 16. Um, and so mm-hmm. they married um, the same week that the Common Sense came out. And then, uh, of course, had no idea that this was going to be yeah. this. This huge thing. Um, so that was a big point. Of course, was... you couldn't. Sorry, they couldn't have known that, that within six months, Rush would be signing the Declaration yeah. of Independence, or that Julius Stockton's father would be signing the mm-hmm. Declaration of Independence because he wasn't in the Congress
0: then either. How does how does Rush become uh, involved with the Middle Department of the Continental Army?
1: Um. So when Rush is made a member of the Continental Congress, he's one of the few doctors.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Certainly, one of the few active doctors. And so he's put at the head of the committee that's overseeing the medical service in general, which at this point is being run by his mentor, John Morgan. Uh. In Washington, hired a Philadelphia doctor because Philadelphia was the center of medicine in America Mm -hmm. to run it. And Morgan was running it, and Rush was on the committee overseeing it. Um, Within a very short period of time, I mean, Rush becomes a continental congressman in the summer of 1776. He signs the declaration in August. Uh, By the fall, he's kind of wandering away from Congress because he wants to help on the front lines. Um, His father-in-law is kidnapped by the British. Uh, He sends his wife away, and he goes, and he's with Washington the night of the crossing of the Delaware. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some of the scenes we have of Washington are because Rush was with him, you know, the scene of him dropping a piece of paper on the ground that says victory or death. Yeah, Yeah, That's from Rush's commonplace books. Yeah. That's where we have that description. And he gives Rush uh, instructions to take back to the Pennsylvania troops. And, you know, we know that whole story. And Rush crosses. He treats patients from the Battle of Trenton. Mm -hmm. He then goes to the Battle of Princeton, which is being fought in front of Nassau Hall, where he went to college. (laughs) That's right. And he's treating patients on the ground, you know, and in Nassau Hall, um, which has, you know, which has just been taken back from the British. And um, his father-in-law's uh, house has been destroyed by the British. His father-in-law wanders back. And in the middle of all this, Rush gets voted out of office. <laughs> because, In part because of his views about uh, separation of church and state. Sure. Because of his views about the Pennsylvania Constitution. So he is voted out of office, and Washington immediately moves to have him be uh, one of the Surgeon Generals mm-hmm. in his newly reorganized... Um, medical department, he's forced out, John Morgan has been forced out by Rush's other mentor, his tour mentor mentor, <laughs> William Shippen, um, another Philadelphia doctor yep. who, who from Washington was friendly with, and um, so he was hired to be certain general for the middle department, which at that point was the most important part of the war. Mm-hmm. That's where all the fighting was going on. And so Rush found himself for the better part of a year being in charge of all the military hospitals, in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, um, where all the fighting was. And uh, it was a nightmare. You know, they, obviously sure. they had no treatment for infections of anything. Uh, Russia's main goal was to keep people out of the hospital. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a very famous treatise about, about medicine um, in the military, which talked about that. Um, and uh, he had a very rough year. He, it, You know, we lost like every battle that year.
0: Oh, yeah. It was not um, a good year.
1: Yeah, it was about <laughs> 77. Bad year. Um, and uh, so, you know, he was at the Battle of Brandywine. He got captured and, and released. He was he was at just all these battles where we just got our butts kicked in a huge way. Yeah. And so by the end of 77, he was really upset, really worried. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's the beginning of the first round of people thinking we already blew it with America. Yeah, right. Which <laughs> yeah. this thing which keeps cycles in our life, even up through today. You know, we're always like, oh, the American experiment. Yeah, you know, we finally yeah. blew it. You know, so they were talking about that in seventy seven, seventeen seventy seven. Russian Washington were actually friendly, and uh, Washington would come over to Russia's house for mm-hmm. tea, and he Washington relied on him for medical advice, and um, they liked each other. Washington was uh, friendly with uh, his in laws. Mm-hmm. Um, so they had a very good relationship. And then what happened was, you know, Washington hired Shippen, who really was at this point, who hated Rush. Yeah, He had been Rush's teacher. Now he hated Rush. He was trying to get Rush out. Rush felt that Shippen was doing a very bad job running the hospitals. Um, he felt not only that he was unresponsive, but that he was stealing, which he was. Um, we later find out that he was. Violating the public so trust. trying to get... Right. So he's trying to get Washington to pay attention to this and let him know that Shippen's the wrong guy for this job. Maybe he wants it himself. Maybe he doesn't. Yeah. But what he's complaining about is not wrong. And the hospitals are a mess. Sure. Um, you know, you want to talk about not being able to get tests for the coronavirus. I mean, the main treatment at this time, one of the main treatments was wine. And there was no wine in part because Shippen was selling it on the side.
0: Uh, To make money. He was double dealing. So
1: so it was not a a good thing. So Rush was very upset about shipping. He was very upset that we were losing all these battles. Mm -hmm. He had been hearing from the generals who he was friends with. Rush was a powerful guy. He was everybody's doctor. He had been a continental congressman. He was now in charge of the hospital. Mm -hmm. He was good friends with Adams and friendly with Jefferson and friendly with Washington. So he was a guy to know. Yeah. So he had been talking to the generals who were all telling him, you know, maybe we're seeing that Washington is not the right guy, or maybe we're seeing that Washington shouldn't be putting these people in charge below him, Sure, which is a huge debate and makes a big difference. Yeah. You know, whether Rush really undermined Washington or was criticizing Washington's choices, you know, which is a, an underlying issue of the whole, you know, Conway cabal thing, which we can discuss on mm-hmm. the time. What we know is that Rush was all alone in January of 1778. His wife was far away. Mm-hmm. His best friend at this time, Adams, who was really his reality check, um, was also far away. He was being sent away. Rush was livid what was going on with the war. Mm-hmm. He felt that Washington was not paying attention to his letters. He was very impatient. Um, and he he wrote what would be the equivalent of like the email you should never push send on. <laughs> yeah, And um, he, he actually, he, he wrote it to Patrick Henry. So he actually wrote a letter to Adams about how all this stuff, it didn't matter. Adams got it. He yeah. had a letter to his wife. Um, obviously no one ever saw that letter, but he wrote a letter to, uh, to Patrick Henry, an anonymous letter, mm-hmm. um, uh, raising just the questions that everybody else had been raising, that all the other generals had been raising Repeating the, the the phrase that had become the cornerstone of uh, of the Conway Cabal issue, and um, he said he asked Henry to burn the letter, mm-hmm. and he just was really sort of you know wanted to let him know what he what he thought about what's going on. And he had at the same time been writing to Washington about getting more money for the hospitals and for Washington to pay more attention to the hospitals. Yeah, and if you look if you put the letters side by side in time, what you can see is that he wrote this letter to Patrick Henry because he was really mad that he hadn't heard back from Washington. Oh, I bet so. And so he sends the letter to Henry in the middle of January. Henry doesn't respond to it because he doesn't know who it's from. And he doesn't do anything with it for months. You know, a week or two later, Rush gets a letter from Washington. So he's happy. And Washington basically says that he agrees with most of the things that Rush had asked for. And he actually changes them.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So, you know, the things that Rush had asked for, Washington actually does. But by this point, Shippen, he tells Washington, you either have to fire Rush or I quit. And, you know, Washington, who has openly expressed his utter disbelief at how mean Philadelphia doctors are to each other <laughs> and how, you know, how, I can't believe that these are the best doctors in the country yeah. and that we have to rely on them to run all this, um, chooses Shippen over Rush. Mm-hmm. And Rush is forced out. Um, and Rush goes home. And um, as the British finally leave Philadelphia, he goes back to try to start his practice. And actually, only months later, Patrick Henry, I guess this letter is burning, a, you know, something in his pocket. He <laughs> decides to send it to Washington. He sent the letter to Washington in, like, March. Washington sees the letter. You know, he, Henry forged the letter. He says, look, I don't know who wrote this letter, and I don't know how important this whole, you know, cabal thing is, but I just think you should see it. And Washington writes to Russia all the time. So he knows Rush's handwriting. Oh, sure. He knows Rush wrote it. And he never forgives Rush for writing this letter because it's not like he hadn't heard all these things before. Mm -hmm. But Rush was his friend. Right. He was a social friend. He was a political friend. He was a former uh, congressman. And something about this just made Washington incredibly angry about Rush that he had done this at this time. Now we don't know a lot about what happened with all this because it's not like Rush, Rush, it's not like Washington ever talked about this again very much. Right. Okay. We just kind of fill in the blanks of their anger. You know what we know is that you know after the war they had a relationship. They would have they would meet for tea sometimes. Mm-hmm. They would see each other um, at the Stockton's house. Um, but what we also know is that when when Washington is dying, he makes sure that somebody who's going to write about him knows that Rush wrote this letter. (laughs) Um, So, like, one of the last things he does before he dies, because Henry dies, and he's reminded that, you know, he makes sure that this letter gets in the hands, ultimately, of his biographer, John Marshall. Um, And so, he thinks that somebody should see this letter. Now, Marshall was nice enough to Rush to publish it without Rush's name. I mean, it wasn't signed.
0: Yeah, that's true. And uh, that's fair.
1: But, But you know that's like a pretty long grudge (laughs) uh, to hold, and so we don't really know that much about Washington and Russia's relationship after this. Mm -hmm. Except the assumption is that it's frosty. But we are reminded of how much stuff about the relationship between the founders we just make up to fill in between the plot points that we actually can identify in letters. You know, I really just an enormous amount.
0: I really like the phrase you just used of filling in the blanks of their anger. Uh, I'm going to steal that from, okay. from now on. <laughs> but I think you're absolutely right. I mean, there are there are silences that we struggle to fill, uh, and sometimes we have circumstantial evidence that will allow us to flesh out that silence. But other times, a lot of it's just conjecture. But, I mean, and you're right, too. Washington, he could hold a grudge if he wanted to. Uh, he, was, he was not above right,
1: that. I, I think that more... I think that one of the dynamics here is that, you know, Martha, he and Martha, especially Martha, they were close to Annis Boudin Stockton. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They often stayed at their house. And I, my guess is that, and again, you got to remember every person who you don't have letters from, you're just filling in the blanks about what their relationship is. And the other thing that's really annoying for a historian is that whenever you have characters that you really like, who write letters to each other when they're not in the same place, Mm -hmm. when they're in the same place, there's no letters. There's no letters. Yeah. Yeah. So you have no ability to, not no ability, but a lot less ability to see the richness of their relationships when they're actually seeing each other all the time. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of empty uh, blanks there. But I think that it's fair to say that that Washington never did anything to stop Rush. Mm-hmm. I mean, he never did anything politically to block Rush. Rush was offered a job at the Mint under the Washington administration, which he turned down. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no evidence that that Washington ever did anything like that, even though Rush and Hamilton didn't get along. And you can imagine that Hamilton did not want uh, Rush to succeed. The two of them, like, like, but so I I think it's interesting. And I, but I think that what I always want to remind people, even if they've read it in a million history books or in a million Wikipedia pages Mm -hmm. is like, if you're interested in a certain relationship, it behooves you to look at, how much of the relationship we don't have any evidence for. Sure. Oh, yeah. And and how, during different times, people fill in those blanks with different stuff.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. The relationship between Washington and Rush is really interesting. There's not a lot of evidence uh, for it one way or the other. Um, But it is fascinating because it is one of the hugest grudges that we know of. Mm -hmm. And I think it's an example of somebody who was just really hurt personally by the fact that at this moment, rush did not a hundred percent seem to support him whereas he had been a very vocal supporter of washington up to that point
0: yeah yeah and it makes sense too i mean the conway cabal um you know whatever whatever shape it took i mean it, there was a a moment where it did kind of threaten washington's command and he was he was in need of his friends and you know if one of his friends is seemingly abandoning him that's um that's not something you're easily going to forget
1: Although I don't think there's ever been any, any indication that Rush was a major player in sure, the Conway.
0: Sure, sure. Oh, yeah.
1: And I will say that the, the most damning letter no one ever found. I mean, we found it at the Rosenbach Museum during the research for this thing. said so that there's a the letter to Henry. That's pretty negative. Mm-hmm. There's a letter to Adam. That's pretty negative. There's a letter he wrote to his wife, which is a 100 times more negative <laughs> and longer. It's five pages long. It was donated to the Rosenbach Museum in the 1970s or 80s. I I just don't think anybody paid enough that much attention to. Me and one of my researchers were going through this one day, and we were like, okay, this is a letter from Rush to his wife, and it's all the same kind of Conway cabal language. It's the same week as the Patrick Henry letter, but it's much more in-depth. It's also funny because in it, Rush first says to Julia, well, you know, Everybody in the Pennsylvania delegation agrees with me about this. So I don't even need to talk about it anymore because everybody all agrees that, you know, that Washington has put the wrong generals in place and that's why we're losing. And then he gets so sad. He said, I will be satisfied to be silent. And he underlines (laughs) to be silent. And then he goes on for like three pages, (laughs) you know, ripping every general that Washington has put into place. If this letter had been found during the revolution,
0: Rush would have been in much worse shape. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that's pretty fantastic. I mean, it's always great to find something that very few, if any, people have seen before in the archives that yeah. really changes or uh, makes a story much more complex than you ever thought possible to begin with.
1: Yeah. When you rewrite the history of history, just because one letter you didn't know about.
0: <laughs> it's always a good day. Well, you mentioned Yellow Fever a moment ago, I, and I do want to turn to that. I, I'm hoping we can, uh, we can skip ahead of uh, a few years and, and talk about 1793. I think, you know, given that we're in the middle of of the coronavirus pandemic right now, um, there has been a a lot of talk about 1793 and you've been very active on Twitter. I've seen recently uh, talking with very folks about the epidemic that plagued Philadelphia in that period. And I mean, I guess just to start, I mean, can you give us a sense of what yellow fever is and, and what did people at the time know about it?
1: Sure. Um, So yellow fever is a tropical disease. Uh, It was not known to be seen that much in America, but it occasionally was. Mm -hmm. Rush um, recalled being involved in a much smaller yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia in 1762 when he was um, an apprentice. Um, And there had been outbreaks in South Carolina and other places, but nothing quite like what happened in 1793 in Philadelphia, where we say that 10% of the population died. Uh, But I think that it was actually more like 15 percent because when we make that number, we assume that everybody, almost everybody in Philadelphia was still there. But Mm -hmm. I don't think they were. I mean, it was the end of the summer. A lot of people were away and then a lot of people left. Yeah. So I I think that the number, the 5000 people who died might represent 15 or even 20 percent of the population of Mm -hmm. people who were actually living there. And people got this disease and some of them died in three days. And you know, keep in mind, no one knew the difference between any diseases at this point. I mean, they, they knew nothing about infection. They knew nothing about it. I mean, they knew that at a certain point, if you had yellow fever, because you actually turned yellow, your eyes turned yellow, and you vomited black vomit. Yeah. But that was the end. You yeah. Know? So, you know, once you're about to die and you're doing that, then they know you have yellow fever. Otherwise, you know, they're still not sure. There's a lot of illnesses that come in the fall. Um, You know, it's not like they didn't have normal flu and colds and all that kind of stuff. So it was, um, but it just sort of came out of nowhere. Rush, uh, it it was a week or two before Rush understood what he was seeing. Um, And the irony, because you know, the story of yellow fever is both a medical story, uh, a political story. It's also a racial story, Mm -hmm. uh, which is fascinating. So what we know is that the, the, the day Rush figured out that this was coming was also the day of the roof raising. Uh, for the first free black church in America, darn, uh, which became, you know, Mother Bethel AME Church, mm-hmm. which Rush had helped fund, which Rush had written the plan for. And Rush was very close with the black clergy, especially Richard Allen and mm-hmm. Absalom Jones. And he was at a dinner um, in August uh, at, celebrating the roof raising at which um, African-American members of the uh, congregation served the white people who had either been carpenters or had been financiers, or had been involved in all this, Um, served them dinner, then the white people got up, the African Americans sat down, and the white people served them dinner. Um, And Rush was the only one who was asked to sit at both sittings because he had been such Uh a crucial person in all this. Um, I explain this only because I think that there are people who hear the story of how African Americans were involved in the care, and that they were told initially that they were immune. yeah, And that this was somehow... A mean trick played on them by somebody who didn't know them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The rush was considered the, the white person in America, certainly in Philadelphia, who was closest to the African American community, was the president, you know, the leader of the Abolition Society, was very active in the Free African Society. He was one of the only doctors who would say out loud that black people and white people were the same. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, anyway, so. He has this dinner, and that, the next day he starts realizing, you know, I've, I've had a couple of cases. They're all sort of coming together in a way to make it look like we could have yellow fever. And this is late August. And then within a week, people are dying everywhere. Right. And um, every doctor in town who's still there, because most of the doctors, as soon as they see it, they just leave. Um, is, and these doctors, as, as I've told you, they don't all get along that well <laughs> when there isn't yellow fever. <laughs> So, no, Madge, Shippen is still there. I mean, he's, you know, you know, Russia forced him to be court-martialed during the Revolutionary War, and now he and Russia have to help <laughs> figure out, like, what they're going to do about this. These are not people who got along So um So, the doctors are all trying to figure out what to do. They're trying to figure out why this is happening. Uh, they have no idea if it's carried by mosquitoes. They have no idea if it's contagious person-to-person or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, they believe it's in the air. I mean, this time oh, there was yeah. a theory, of miasma theory of dangerous air so they believed the dangerous air had emanated originally because there were some spoiled coffee on the wharf um <laughs> near arch street sure and so they decided that that's what made the air bad um and uh <laughs> so and that air was moving around and that's what was making people sick so you had people they believed that if they changed the air around them mm-hmm. that would help so they would smoke um they would sort of like gunpowder they wear garlic around their neck. One of my favorites is they would take rope and dip the end of it, the either end in tar and then wear it around their neck. So the tar smell would change the smell around <laughs> them. Um, and so no one knows what to do. Yeah. And the, the Philadelphia has the first medical association in America, the college of physicians. And again, Philadelphia is the first medical school in the country. Yeah. Their doctors are like the lead doctors, So they kind of get together to decide what, what should happen here. This is the first public health decree in America. In the, yeah. in the new America. Yeah, sure. And they announced, um, a number of steps. One of which is that, uh, the bell that will later be called the Liberty bell, which th- at that time was just the bell of the state house. Mm-hmm. Stop time. Somebody dies because they're ringing it like every five minutes. <laughs> yeah. And you know, the number of funerals they're announcing, is like just too much for the yeah. of the town. Um, and they tell people to stay away from each other. A lot of the social distancing things that we're doing today. Don't come near each other mm-hmm. when you're in a house, be in the middle of a room with all the windows open. Um, and they talk about different possible treatments. And um, then what happens? and they also uh, note that the hospital won't take the patients. So Pennsylvania Hospital and the Almshouse, which were the things that had already been set up for poor people, yeah. refused to take the yellow fever patients because they didn't know how, it was, how people would get it. Mm-hmm. They were afraid that everybody would get it in the hospital. So the poor people weren't allowed to go there. So they recommended that somebody create a separate triage hospital just for this. I see. Um, that, be- And that became Bush Hill. Um, and Rush was involved in, in the creation of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, all the people in the college positions were. So, what happens is it keeps getting worse. Yeah. And everything they do does almost nothing. And what we now know is that there's still no treatment for yellow fever. <laughs> um, yellow fever is not something that you can stop its progression. Mm-hmm. You basically let people either make it through or not. These people didn't know that, they thought that their treatments were working. Um, and what happened was a certain number of people kept his the milder treatments and rush, who was like the God of medicine. He was leading doctor yeah. teaching at the Penn medical school. He had very big ideas about what medicine should be. He would have definitely believed in chemotherapy and, and oh, all yeah. kinds of other was really strong. He believed in strong medicine. Yeah. Uh, people now make fun of it as heroic medicine is that the thing he did was nuts. Um, but what he did was as nuts as, any other really strong yeah. treatment that people use at the time, I remember a doctor raised his hand when I gave a speech about this once. He said, well, how could Benjamin Rush use bloodletting and really strong bloodletting bl- during yellow fever now that we know it's a stupid thing to do? And I said, well, I don't know. I mean, I had an aunt who had breast cancer, um, and for the years that she had breast cancer, the extreme treatment after everything else didn't work was stem cell transplant. Oh, sure. And now we know that doesn't work at all. Yeah. You know? So is that stupider? Is, and does that come from a worse thing? And do you really think he knew it didn't work and he was doing it anyway? Yeah, yeah. Because I do think that that's the way sometimes we revise history. So, so the doctors were fighting over what should be done. Rush tried the lesser treatments and he found they didn't work. Mm-hmm. He found that if he gave them wine and bark and uh, liquids and you know just and the, which were the sort of the lesser treatments at the time, the people died. Yeah. He added purging, which was a standard treatment at the time. You give somebody, they can throw up or have diarrhea. The idea is that you get the, whatever the bad thing is out of you. Get it out of you. Um, Right. So he did that and and it didn't work. And then when it didn't work, he gave stronger purges, um, which had mercury in them. And people now go, oh my God, he gave them mercury. It's poison. Well, you know, guess what? People were using mercury as a medicine for like a hundred years after Oh, Sure. Yeah. So yes, it's stupid and it's wrong, but one, he didn't invent it. And two, you know, he wasn't alone in doing this. Yeah. Um, and so eventually he got to bloodletting and um, he first started with light bloodletting. And bloodletting was something you did when the pulse was fast and hard mm. to lessen the volume of blood. Because, the, the, you know, keep in mind, they couldn't look into people. There were no x-rays. Yeah.
2: yeah. One of the
1: only things you could check was the pulse. And so yeah. if pulse seemed too strong. You knew that if you took blood out, the pulse would go down.
3: Makes it was, sense. It was like
1: one of the few things you could do that actually had a result. Yeah. We don't do it anymore. <laughs> exactly. It's a bad way to get to where we want to be. So initially, people only did bloodletting when people's pulses were really, really hard and tense mm-hmm. to make them slow down. Um, and Rush did that, and it still didn't work. And then he, he found a medical book that Franklin had given him. And in the medical book, it said that in certain emergency situations, you could do bloodletting even when the pulse is low, mm-hmm. which you really wouldn't do. You wouldn't want to do that. But the medical book said, said it was and, and I think that people have to understand, I mean, these doctors were grasping at straws. They were reading. There was no medical journals at the time. They read uh, patient reports and mm-hmm. things that were been written up by doctors that were published by different regional medical societies. They did the best they could. And in this case, probably everything they did didn't make a bit of difference. Sure. Certain percentage of people live, but they did not know this. Mm-hmm. So the doctors fought. Rush quit a lot. In the uh, college of physicians. All the other doctors started publishing their treatments in the newspapers because they felt the other doctors were wrong. <laughs> um, so this is the beginning of self help medicine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and their idea is there's not enough doctors to go visit people in their houses. Um, and keep in mind, you didn't you didn't need a prescription to get a, to get drugs. Sure. you go to an apothecary, they'll give you drugs. And people who did bleeding were barbers. Oh yeah, yeah They weren't met, all medically trained, so you could get somebody to come to your house and bleed. You could probably do it today if you want. <laughs> I don't recommend it. I'll
0: pass, but um, thank you.
1: Right. So so they were putting things in the newspaper because they understood that this was bigger than the number of doctors that were there. Mm-hmm. And the black clergy um, volunteered. They not only started doing some of the bleeding and purging themselves, they also were paid to take the bodies away because there were so many bodies. Oh, and having yes. the bodies in the houses and everything was unhealthy in and of itself. So they were working with Rush. When they started, Rush told them that the top medical writing that had been done on yellow fever in America mm-hmm. said that African-Americans were less, were immune to yellow fever. Uh, because in the four epidemics that this doctor had written about in North Carolina, he said he had never seen an African-American get the fever. Huh which he thought was surprising. This guy was not like a racist doctor. If you read his whole report, he said he was surprised by that because in every other kind of fever, yeah. African-Americans and whites got them at the same percentage.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So he was surprised by that. That's what Rush knew. Um, that's what Rush told the African-American clergy, who it is my belief would have helped anyway. Yeah. If they had known they were as equally susceptible to get it as Rush himself was, you know, I still think they would have helped. They sure. were doing it as good Christians, and they were doing it in part so that maybe the white community would accept them more mm-hmm. if they, if they did something really that was important and, and heroic and helped. Um, and within weeks, Rush realized that it was wrong Yeah. because both he and Richard Allen, the Reverend got sick at the same time. Yeah. He made it very clear that it was wrong. It, it, it didn't remain in the medical journals or anything because <laughs> they knew it was wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it, it becomes like this thing that's bigger than everything else that's going on. The biggest thing that's going on is heroic people who are the remaining doctors and the members of the black clergy and their parishioners are putting their lives on the line every day, mm-hmm. just like our healthcare professionals are today. Absolutely, Doing the best they can trying to keep people from dying. And when they die, to keep their deaths from making other people die.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, sure. or creating unsanitary conditions because it's just... You know, we're talking about five thousand people dying in a pretty small town. Yeah. In three in three months. Um, and so I, I, I just think that it's most important to see what an out of control situation mm-hmm. it was, how that everybody was here was trying their best. And what's actually astonishing is that because of the nature of yellow fever, it just like stopped one day.
3: Oh yeah, yeah. It it's like
1: it like gets cold, the mosquitoes all go away, the remaining cases play out. And then there's no more yellow fever. Yeah. Except from then on, everyone's afraid when August comes.
3: Oh, sure. Sure.
1: And and, and everyone's afraid when August comes for a really long time. Mm-hmm. People don't always tell that part of the story, but in the major east coast cities, because when we're thinking about how this is gonna be like coronavirus, yeah, yeah. You only hear, oh, it's yellow fever epidemic, it lasted for three months, then it was all over, blah blah. Well, guess what? In Baltimore, in Philadelphia, in New York, and Newark, in Boston you know, any coastal cities, mm-hmm. you know, sharp people were scared to death every time August came around. Well, that makes sense. Because they now knew this was possible. Yeah, and, and there were yellow fever epidemics in a number of these cities, lesser ones, through the 1790s and into the 1800s. And it wasn't until the late 1800s that anybody figured out that it was because of mosquitoes. Oh, yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you always have to remind yourself, no matter how, Mad people seem at each other during the time when you're reading it. You know um, the limits of knowledge yes. and how the limits of knowledge you know, play into this. When I like, I cover mental health, mm-hmm. and one of the best things, um, late uh, brilliant psychiatrist Richard Wyatt, uh, who was uh, very involved in schizophrenia research, uh, married to Kay Jameson, and a friend of ours, and, and was somebody who I used as a source. And when I started reporting on mental health, he, did, he one of the things he said to me: when things go wrong, they always think. This was a knowable thing. You did it wrong on purpose or you should have known better. And it's like, we don't understand these diseases and how they work in each person and how each drug is going to work in person as much as you want us to, as much as we want to. Sure. So it was interesting. I tried to bring that kind of perspective to all the historical reporting of Benjamin Rush, which Mm -hmm. is not where people fill in the blanks, assuming people knew stuff and did everything on purpose. Yeah. But assuming, in fact, that people often didn't know a lot of things oh, sure, and had to act based on lack of information and then maybe later found out about it or didn't find out about it. Because I do think that what you fill in the blanks with uh, can can really just change the story. Right. So um, and, and in, in terms of history, what's interesting is that you know, most people's knowledge of, of the yellow fever mm-hmm. comes from a really compelling book that was written in 1949. Wow. Okay. Um, called, actually here it is called bring out your dead. (laughs) It was actually one of the first, um, novelistic medical books, Mm -hmm. um, was written by a guy who was a librarian in Philadelphia who was interested in this. And, um, his name was John Powell. And, uh, he wrote this book based on the knowledge at the time in 1949 of somebody who was not a doctor Mm -hmm. and, He took a very Cold War approach to all this, which was that somebody had to be wrong. Right. And in this case, Rush was the enemy Mm -hmm. because Rush had done bloodletting, and that meant he was wrong. There was no way to look at the situation and go like, well, no one really knew, and everybody did what they could. So his version of this, what's amazing is that because so little else has been written about this, his version of it and the, the spin of it, mm-hmm. you know, still continues today. And it's really hard to get people to look at a more evidence-based view of this yeah. based on more recent knowledge of what we know about medicine, more recent knowledge of what we know about public health. Because um, this is this is an er story in American history. This is the beginning of uh, public health. Mm-hmm. This is the beginning of government thinking about what government can do when it has to be advocate. Yeah. So it's more than public health. It's actually the beginning. Thing of progressivism in a way, mm-hmm. you know, and so so we really should look hard at the choices that were made in this and what the players were doing um, because it really does matter. It matters in the history of medicine, it matters in the history of politics, it matters in the history of race.
0: One of the questions I um, maybe we can close on this is, um, you know, what parallels do you see from that moment in 1793 to what's happening right now with the coronavirus epidemic or pandemic? Or are there parallels? Well, there
1: are parallels, and there are also aspects of this that are parallel, because, of course, everybody in the country is going through this at the same time, Mm -hmm. which was not the case in 1793. Um, And in reality, because of the competition between the major ports, Mm -hmm. you know, the other cities that didn't have Yellow Fever, they were all trying to, hoping that this would cause them to steal Philadelphia's business. Sure, Because Philadelphia was the dominant port, the dominant city at that time. So I think it is different when everybody doesn't have it. But I think it's the basic ideas, which are um, the idea that, that the media gives you the impression somehow that whoever yells loudest is right. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, when there is, and in, when there is a lack of science, politics fills the void. Mm. Um, that, is, that is what happened the first time this happened in America, yep. and that's what is going to happen every time this happens in America. And it happens – I mean I, I'm a medical writer. I mean it happens whenever – There is a big medical situation uh, where we have a lack of information. I I covered AIDS in the 80s before people knew what drug would be able to treat it. Mm -hmm. So I can tell you the difference between what was a fact in the 80s and what became a fact as science moved forward. And people tend to forget the parts that were politicized because sometimes when the emergency stops being an emergency, it's convenient to forget how frenetic it was Oh, sure. Well, we didn't know enough, um, and so certainly the messages of the uh, you know of, of the flu epidemic in 1918 was they kind of screwed everything up the first time, <laughs> and then figured it out the second time when they let a second wave come. So yeah. what I would say is that from the beginnings of the two party system, uh, and I do think we thank Alexander Hamilton for that uh, because Hamilton did sort of create <laughs> this idea that the politics would be a zero sum game, and R- Rush and Adams were already pissed at him about that before this happened. <laughs> sure, they already recognized that, and so that was what they saw going into place. It was not surprising to them that Adams went to the newspapers and claimed that his doctor had the right answer.
3: Oh yeah, mm-hmm.
1: you know, and that was a bad thing to do. Okay, I mean, the, if the medical community in Philadelphia, even with their disagreements, had been able to stay organized and not go to the point where each of them, including Rush, we're going to the newspaper saying, no, I'm right. That guy, the other guy's stupid. No, I'm right. No, this federalist cure is right. No, the Republican cure is yeah. right. You know, that is what you don't want. Um, that's what we see, like, Anthony Fauci trying incredibly hard not to let happen.
0: <laughs> exactly, yeah. Like,
1: hold, the, you know, it, it is It is his version of hold the college of positions together. Yeah. <laughs> because on top of everything else going on here, we can't have that. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah. thank God, I mean, I, I think that the... National Institutes of Health, you know, which Fauci is involved in, has done a good job keeping that part of it in tow. But, you know, look, every political person can have their opinion. Mm -hmm. Whoever can get quoted in the newspaper can get quoted in the newspaper. And then once it's in the newspaper, you have to deal with it. And while we think that being in the Internet environment is so unique because of such 24-7 media, and it is, Every advance in the media is like that to people who've never had it before.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And
1: in America, this is the time when we went from having sometimes once or twice a week newspapers to having seven or eight daily newspapers in the nation's capital, yeah. Philadelphia. So in their lives, their, that advancement of, and saturation of media probably was as similar, similar and different to them as our internet saturation of media is. So there's often, mm. you know, a political thing that's similar, there's often the fight between liberty and government, yeah. which is hardwired into America. And people saying, no, the reason we created a government together so the government could make some decision yeah. um, that might overturn your freedom short run, but then more people will live. Right. Um, and uh, and the balance between whether science is enough or whether faith is the answer. Um, and uh, so you have faith communities sitting mm-hmm. in the country right now we are saying, no, we're going to keep, Having services because faith will cure us. Yeah. Um, And so you have these basic dynamics. And again, what I love about Rush is that Rush never thought any of this stuff was ever going to get better. (laughs) He thought, this is America. This is what we fought for. This is the deal we make. This is democracy. Yeah. You know, especially in a large country of people that have disparate ideas. This is democracy. Mm -hmm. And so. I, it was always comforting to me <laughs> in writing about Rush <laughs> that Rush wasn't freaked out. I mean, he was unhappy that these things were happening, but he also recognized, and he wrote back and forth, especially with Adams and Jefferson, how this is hardwired into this thing we Yeah. Made, yeah. And it's always going to be this way. And the only other version of it is having a king mm-hmm. and having a state church. So you get that kind of comfort of this is the best we can do in an emergency, and you hope that leaders will lead. And interestingly, while Rush was wrong medically at the time, Rush was the inspirational leader of the medical community Mm -hmm. during the yellow fever epidemic. He was the hero, even though many people felt that he should be the anti-hero. Because in America, you need a hero. Yeah. You you need a communicator who will say, we're going to get this together, and this is what we're doing, and this is the best thing we know for sure, but I'm going to keep communicating with you because I know that you need that rush had good bedside manner (laughs) even for a whole city. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And so that part of it is the same. Uh, And look, the battle for uh, to get knowledge as quickly as possible solve a problem is always going to be a huge problem. And you definitely see it in that. Look, I think that it's a great time. I've had so many school kids wanting to talk about yellow fever since this all happened. It's been so interesting. Their questions have been great. Um, I work with an organization here in Philly called Healthy Newswork, mm-hmm. which has elementary and middle school kids who want to learn how to write about health and good health. Oh, wow. And they they, they interview people like me. They interviewed me about Benjamin Rush. They interview doctors trying to mm-hmm. communicate health ideas to kids in kids' languages. So I think a lot of people are wondering um, about this.
0: Well, and I think uh, you know, for folks who read your book, they'll, in, in a lot of ways, take comfort in the fact that um, – we're still living in Benjamin Rush's America in many ways, and uh, you know the, yep. the experiment he was a part of in the beginning is still ongoing, and uh, it'll uh, it'll continue long after us, and, and especially when the next crisis comes.
1: Yes, it will, and that's what the fa- that's when you get to know the founders the way that Rush knew them. You hmm. always feel that way because even when they are expressing their darkest fears, they always have a sense of optimism. Yeah. Um, and they know that, that sense of optimism is like, that's America. Yeah. And, and that's what they had, and that's what they, uh, that's what they communicate to us still.
0: Well, I think that's a great place to end it there is on, on, a, on a, a point of optimism uh, that this will get okay. better and we'll get through it. Uh, Stephen, I want to thank you very much for joining us today, and uh, we look forward to seeing what you're doing next. And, and thanks for all you're doing to spread the word about Benjamin Rush, and hopefully, uh, folks can take up the mantle after you.
1: Thanks. I really enjoyed the conversation.
0: Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Busky. Our music was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hillebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, please consider making a donation to Mount Vernon. More information